We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right In 1995, the TV series Mr. Bean went to air for the first time. It was a strange program. Mr. Bean was mostly silent, with only a handful of words being spoken by him throughout the whole three series. The audience reactions to him vary a lot. I think the cleverness of the wordless comic actions is brilliant, and I love the show. My wife finds Mr. Bean to be an incredibly nasty human being, which he is. She also can't contain her discomfort at the situations that he gets himself into. She just can't watch. There's a saying, nothing can be made foolproof because fools are so ingenious. And that is what the Mr. Bean series is all about. Anzac Day is approaching, and this program's all about Anzac Day. So why on earth am I talking about Mr. Bean, his silent comedy and foolishness? Well, because it echoes my story about Anzac Day, how the experience of the fighting at Gallipoli changed how Australians had seen themselves from being Englishmen abroad to start with to Australians completely at home with themselves as the war dragged on and the remarkable qualities of those Australian soldiers compared to the English soldiers that they were fighting alongside with shone through. And no, I haven't gone completely mad. There is a Mr Bean in my story, Mr Charles Bean. He was the first embedded war correspondent in modern terms. He was also the man who was destined to write the official history of Australia's experience in World War I and written by a man who had seen it up close and lethal. He was also the man who founded the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. So the whole silent movie thing of Mr Bean harkens back to the time of the Great War and just afterwards, with comedians like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. And some of the things that happened, well, they could have been funny if thousands of men didn't pay with their lives, or in the case of those lucky enough, or maybe not, to have survived, who carried the scars of what they went through until the very day that they died. Those men spent their time mostly with their families. Sometimes they never left the hospitals that they were sent to after being gassed or losing their minds. And their families typically never knew anything about what these men had gone through. And perhaps they should be grateful for that. 
When World War I broke out in August 1914 and the British Empire got involved, there was no shortage of recruits in Australia who wanted to give England a hand. It was the right thing to do, the proper thing to do. For a lot of young men, it was going to be a jolly rip-roaring adventure. The recruiting stations were quickly overwhelmed with willing recruits from the finest men, from the finest families, to the most humble men, but good stuff for making soldiers of. The 1981 movie Gallipoli by Peter Weir, starring Mel Gibson and Mark Lee, gives a good account of the whole show. The main characters, Frank Dunn and Archie Hamilton, are West Australians, and the brave men from that state, the men of the 10th Light Horse, feature in that movie and in the story I'm going to tell. And what a role those Western Australians are going to play in Australia's Anzac Day legend. Although when it came to it, I don't doubt that they wished they hadn't. The main hero of my story, though, is Charles Bean. He was a man who'd tried his hand at a lot of things before he found his true talent. Charles had been born in Australia on 18 November 1879. His father, Edwin, was English. In 1877, his father had married Lucy Butler, the daughter of a prominent Tasmanian legal family. When Charles was just 10 years old, his family returned to England. His father was, at the time, the headmaster of a private Anglican school at Bathurst in western New South Wales. But with public education coming into being, to continue the education of people that the church schools had brought in, it became increasingly hard for Charles's father to get students to enrol in the private school. He'd made a great success of the school through his enormous hard work, but at the time he decided to return to England, his father had suffered a nervous breakdown, and that was the reason for the return to England. In England, Charles was educated at various English private schools, ending his education at Oxford. His family's financial circumstances were strained, but Charles won a scholarship to one of the oldest colleges at Oxford, Hartford College. Charles's second-class honours in classics and the results of his entrance exams that he sat for for the English public service and the Indian public service were washouts. The academic standards required for people who wanted to enter the public services were astonishingly high. So Charles decided to head back to Australia. After he'd arrived, he tried his hand at a lot of things. He studied the law, got himself admitted to the bar so that he could pursue a career as a barrister. But he proved hopeless at that. He lacked the killer instinct essential for survival in the hard world of the law. His legal career only lasted for too long or short years, depending on your point of view, and that was because he'd gotten a job as a judge's associate. An associate is like a secretary to a judge, but as was often the case with associates and still is today, the judges had someone filling that role who had studied law and been admitted to practice at law. 
The judge was Justice William Owen. He was heading up a royal commission into the administration of the Department of Lands throughout New South Wales. This meant that Charles had to travel with the judge throughout rural New South Wales. Being out in the country gave Charles his first view of the real Australians, the men he was going to be getting very close to and whose mettle he was going to get to see under the most horrific conditions in the coming Great War. But when his time as an associate came to an end, he could see that he was not suited to make a living at the bar as a barrister. So, what to do? Well, luckily, meanwhile, something had started to happen in the British Empire, including Australia, that would change the course of Charles's life forever. Education reforms in England and Australia in the 1870s led to the opening of compulsory public schools. Every child learned to read and write. You could see the result of this change from the fact that between 1880 and 1900, the number of available newspapers in England and Australia doubled to meet the demand of this newly literate mass audience for news about what was happening in the world or just to read their horoscopes or get gardening tips or the latest goss. It was this free public education that had caused Charles's father's nervous breakdown. But now, in 1908, it resulted in Charles getting a job with the Sydney Morning Herald as a journalist. This job and the training that came with the job was going to give Charles the skills that he needed for what became the work of his life, writing over 30 years Australia's remarkable history of World War I. Charles had a natural interest in military matters. Some of his earliest experiences as a journalist had been about being posted on the British warship HMS Powerful and then writing about the war between Russia and Japan and the almighty clash of their navies and battleships. With the outbreak of the First World War, the Australian government decided to appoint an official war correspondent to accompany our soldiers into battle. A ballot was held by the Australian Journalist Association, and Charles won. He just beat out his nearest rival, and a man that he would have a great deal of contact with over the following years, then journalist and later newspaper magnate Keith Murdoch. Winning this position proved a mixed blessing for Charles. It meant that he was much more obliged to the military hierarchy in the tone he adopted when he reported what was happening in the war, and this restricted some of the things that he really wanted to report, but couldn't, without ending his assignment. But in the long run, it proved decisive. As the official war correspondent, he was chosen as the man to write the Australian official history of the war. What he saw, and couldn't write newspaper reports on, were recorded in meticulous detail in the diaries that he kept throughout the war, and it was this information that gave his official history real, first-hand recording of the war, the horrors of the war, the men who were commanding and what they were like. This was something that most historians would have loved to have had, 
if it wasn't so incredibly dangerous to get this experience right in the front-line trenches with the soldiers like Charles did. The Australian government's position on having an embedded journalist was surprisingly different to what tack had been taken in England, and that remarkable difference was at a time when Australia, as a loyal member of the Empire, generally followed Mother England's lead without thinking about it. The British military didn't trust journalists to write about what was happening in the war. Instead of having professional journalists sent to the battlefields of the Western Front at the beginning of the war, they appointed one of their own officers, Lieutenant Colonel Ernst Swinton, to be the official war correspondent. A bemused Ernst Swinton took on this challenge of becoming a journalist overnight, finding, although they never compared notes that I know of, that he shared some of the experiences of Charles as a professional journalist, chafing at the restrictions that the military imposed on his reporting. By the way, this appointment of Ernst Swinton turned out to be another vitally important happenstance in winning World War I. Swinton got to see firsthand the bloody murder that soldiers in trench war suffered, subject to death on an industrial scale, as they advanced over open ground against a well-entrenched enemy armed with rapid-firing machine guns. Swinton was to go on to become the inventor of the tank. But that's another story entirely, told in his 1933 book called Eyewitness, about his experiences as a journalist and about how he developed the tank. It makes an incredible read. Now, with the first recruits raised in Australia and given a bit of training, the first convoy of Australian soldiers who thought they were going to England to fight on the Western Front set sail for England. The first point of departure was from Port Melbourne on 21 October 1914, the day, the anniversary of the greatest historical significance for the Royal Navy, the day when in 1805 the greatest sailor of all time, Admiral Horatio Nelson, won the greatest naval victory ever, the Battle of Trafalgar. Charles sailed on the passenger liner HMAT Orvieto. It was the flagship for the Australian Imperial Forces. Perth was the last point of departure from Australia. The voyage of the Anzacs into history began from there on 1 November 1914. But out there, in the waters on which the convoy carrying all of Australia's fighting men for the first expedition into the Great War was sailing, there lurked a great danger, one that they were sailing into the jaws of. The captain of HMAS Melbourne, escorting the Australian convoy, had warned that the time of greatest danger for the convoy would be as it sailed past the Cocos Islands, which would be on 9 November. That night, the captain slept on the deck of his warship, ready for trouble. And trouble there was. Unseen, in these days before the invention of radar that would have let him see ahead in the dark, Cutting across the bow of the convoy was the German raider, the Emden. During the night, the Emden had passed within just 30 kilometres of the front of this convoy. News 
of the Emden being at the Cocos Islands spread rapidly through the men board the ships in the convoy. Everyone saw HMAS Sydney peel off from the convoy, making for the islands at flank speed. The Emden, just 80 kilometres away from her and the convoy. Charles got to write the first newspaper report of Australians in war, much earlier than he would have expected. He wrote, Just over the horizon, someone was being done to death in the midst of crashing steelwork, burning decks, sudden flashes of flame. We ought to see something of it at any moment. About 11.15, we heard the fight was practically over. The enemy had been stopped before she even came within sight of us. Enemy run ashore to save sinking, said the message. Later in the afternoon, the message had come through at last. Emden beached and done for. And so it was the Emden. Her business had been finished in about 25 minutes that morning, done whilst we waited. After all, her long career sinking ship after ship in the Indian Ocean, bombarding Madras, raiding Penang, she had wandered down here probably to meet her collier under the lee of one of the coral islands. Australia's first and biggest engagement of the war to that date had just taken place. The Emden had been smashed into scrap metal in just 25 minutes by the baby Royal Australian Navy, now blooded. Sydney later rejoined the convoy. She was carrying a lot of German sailors as prisoners of war. Among the prisoners taken was Capitan Karl von Müller, her skipper. He shared his thoughts on what would have happened if he'd sighted the convoy during the night. We should certainly have sunk six ships, and probably twelve, before your escort could have come along and prevented us. Bravado, maybe, but the loss of life and the destruction of morale of these green Australian troops, and all Australian troops who would have to face peril on the sea who followed them, would have been considerable. The Australians landed at Alexandria on 3 December 1915, not Europe. Where they were going from here was anybody's guess. The Australian government stood up for our boys throughout the war, even though we loved England and the Empire. There was to be no death sentences imposed on any Australian soldiers, the Australian government said. It never backed down from that, although England pressed them on more than one occasion to do it. Finally, in April 1915, the Australians, after much training and preparation, boarded the ships that would take them to, well, wherever it was they were being taken to. On the evening of the 24th of April, their ships changed course, sailing directly for the Dardanelles. Charles wrote reflectively about what the next day would bring, Sunday 25th April. He said, one sometimes is inclined to think of the utter hopeless wastefulness of this whole war. Of course, some people have been a little thoughtful tonight, because we know what a tremendous job it is, this assault on a strong fortress. But the Australian troops and officers are pleased with the compliment 
that has been paid them. It's a great gamble, the whole thing, really. A lot of bits of metal in the air, and just a chance whether you stop one or let it pass. A lot of men at one end of a machine throwing things into space with a deadly swiftness without the least idea what is going to be the effect of each discharge. It may mean a tragedy in some little cottage home in Tasmania or in an English country house. It may kill or wound or take out an eye or take off a leg. And a lot of Australians, boys who begin life on the Murray or in a backyard in Wagga or Burke or Surrey Hills, will be left lying in Turkey. Charles wasn't with the first troops landing. Well, after 4am he wrote that it was the time when our 3rd Brigade ought to be rushing out of their boats somewhere up the slope of those grey hills ahead. There is no sign yet of action. It is still too dark to see what I am writing. But the dawn is slowly growing. At 5am, the troops on his ship headed for the mess for their final peaceful cooked meal. For some, it would be their last. For others, who knew how long before they would get the chance for their next meal. Charles could only manage to hastily eat some porridge and grab a cup of tea. And then he went back on the deck. He watched the destroyers firing onto the distant targets on the hillside. Erratic, rattling fire could be heard over the hills. Fire from our boys and return fire from the Turks. At 6.45am, the men on Charles's ship began climbing down the rope ladders onto the destroyers below them. It was the job of these more shallow-drafted vessels to move closer inshore, where they could offload their smaller boats for the diggers to climb into for their last trip into the shore. Some figures were spotted standing on the skyline of the Gallipoli Peninsula. Whose were they? Turks or Australians. Charles guessed correctly that they were Australians. He wrote, There was no mistaking that casual gait. It was a sure sign throughout the war they were Australians. Rumours were starting to come back to the ships waiting offshore. They were saying that half of the men in the first two boats had been cut down by Turkish gunfire. This was wrong, but the 2nd Brigade that landed later did suffer severe casualties. Another destroyer arrived back from the shore, carrying more wounded. Its decks were slippery with the blood of our men. Finally, at 9.20am, it was time for Charles himself to begin to head into the beaches. First it was down the rope ladders onto the waiting destroyer, then onto the small boats to take him into the beaches. Charles wrote, The sight of hills as we got in closer made one realise what our men had really done. The boat grounded in at two feet of water. We jumped out, waded to the beach and stood on Turkish soil. By night time, the Australian commanders had some surprising feelings 
about how the landings had gone. I'll talk about that in the next program. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone.